Can I just ask you to pray for my iPad this morning? The church printer has broken, so I have no paper, which means I normally like paper notes. My iPad's a bit dodgy, so if it goes off, I'll be making stuff up as we go. So here we go. Pray for my iPad. We all doubt in life, don't we? We all have doubts. Doubts about all kinds of things. If you're sat on a railway platform and you're waiting for a train to come on time, you'll probably doubt that it's going to arrive on time because that doubt is based in experience. Yesterday afternoon, we went out and walked the dog late in the afternoon. What was the weather doing yesterday? Sunshine and showers, but more showers than sunshine. And we're there thinking, will the weather hold? Doubtful. What do we do? We put our raincoats on, we go out and get absolutely soaked because our doubts are realized. Sometimes doubt comes through experience. But then sometimes there's self-doubt. Do you ever doubt yourself? Can I do this? Can I do what I'm meant to be doing? I once remember years ago taking a piano exam, and there was a panel of examiners sat in the room, and I put my hands on the piano, and I had to play this really fast piece of music, and I thought, will my fingers work? Will they move? Will they do what my brain asked me to do? Thankfully, they did. But we all experience that doubt, that doubt that comes in. Sometimes it's not linked in with logic. But what about when we wake up in the morning or wake up in the watches of the night and we're doubting God? What happens when we suddenly have those thoughts? Does God really exist? What happens when we have those thoughts? Does God really love me? Did Jesus really come and die for me? And let's not kid ourselves. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, go through those moments of doubt. Well, if we doubt, actually we're in pretty esteemed company. Because we're diving back into Luke's Gospel today, and as we will see, we are in the company of no less than John the Baptist. A man who had seen so much, and yet's life impacted him, and he suffered with doubt. So if you've got a Bible with you, would you like to turn in Luke's Gospel to Luke chapter 7? I'm going to read from verse 18. I was going to read all the way down to 35, but I think I'll stop at 28 because that's roughly the passage we're looking at this morning. John's disciples told him all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble, on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, or did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one in whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You may want to keep that passage open because we will be diving into it as we go through. Let's just pray again, shall we? 
Lord, doubt is not an easy thing in any part of our lives. And we just pray as we come and explore what is a a really challenging passage of the gospel, that you would give us your insight in how to move forward when we're doubtful, what to do, what to draw on. And so, Lord, would you bring your word alive to us this morning? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes for a minute and think back to his life experiences to date. John the Baptist first appears in Luke's Gospel in the the birth narratives. If you can remember all those readings around Christmas, the birth of, of John the Baptist is intrinsically linked to the birth of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, the mother of John, they encounter one another and they recognize the work of God in each other. I can't imagine that those stories weren't told to John as he was growing up. John has then begun this ministry and he goes around eating locusts and honey, wearing strange clothes and telling people to repent and believe the good news that is about to come. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins and he baptizes people. Now John was born into a priestly family. He could have had great things coming his way in the Jewish religious establishment but actually he chose not to do that. But instead, he chose to follow this calling God had placed on him to be the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. Think back a few weeks. What did John do? Well, he baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. John was there. He was involved in all of that. But then back in chapter 3, after confronting Herod's lifestyle, he gets thrown into prison. And he's been there ever since. It's hard to work out exactly how long, but it's probably many months by this point. So John, who has experienced so much, seen so much, witnessed so much, is now sat in a prison cell wondering what on earth is going on. So he calls one of his disciples, or two of his disciples in fact, in verse 19. And the question goes, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? Are you the Messiah? Or is there somebody else coming who will do better things than you're doing, basically? Are you the one, or are you not? John is in a physical prison cell. Now, when we think of prison in this country, it's not a good thing, I don't think, that we're thinking about. But at least in this country, if you're in prison, you have a bed, you have food, there is rule of law, and you're in there for a determined time set by a judge or a magistrate or whatever. A prison in the first century in in Palestine, in, in Israel, what would happen is you would get thrown in for an indefinite amount of time. There'd be no food. There's no rule of law. You could be mistreated as badly as the guards wanted to. And if your friends didn't bring you food or drink, you would either starve or die of thirst very, very quickly. So it is not a good place to be in at all. And this is where John the Baptist finds himself. Now he's being visited. We imagine that his disciples must be feeding him and bringing him drink and so on. And they're telling him the news of what Jesus is doing. But John is there, caught up not in a mental prison, but in a physical prison that probably creates a mental prison within his mind. All these thoughts are swirling round in his head. What is going on? What is going on in the outside world? What is going on with this ministry of this man called Jesus, who I thought was the Messiah? I don't know whether John had heard about Jesus' sermon in Nazareth. Do you remember that from a few weeks back? When Jesus is there in the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll, he gets to Isaiah chapter 62, and he reads, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. What does he say he's going to do? Free people from prison. That's what Jesus said. 
Where's John? The forerunner, the great herald of the gospel? He's in prison. Doesn't seem to connect, does it? There seems to be a disconnect between John's expectation of what Jesus was saying and Jesus's experience, and John's experience, sorry. If that had been me at that time, I'd have probably been thinking something like, come on, God, I've given this calling my all, and yet here I am abandoned. What am I doing in prison, and why isn't Jesus fulfilling what he said he would do? You know, experience can do that to us, can't it? If things happen in our lives that seem to be out of kilter with our expectation of the goodness of God, it creates a disconnect. And out of disconnect, if we're not careful, is the very fertile soil for doubt to grow out of. And sometimes that disconnect can hit us hard. Now, there are certain parts of the wider church across the world that will teach, you know, the closer you get to God, the more physical blessings you get. The better your health, the shinier your teeth, the better hair you get, and so on. Um, obviously, I'm not doing very well on that last account. But it's that kind of gospel, you know, the kind of prosperity kind of teaching. Now, if you come with that kind of mindset, and then suddenly something hits your life that is a tragedy, you're going to really struggle. You're going to really massively struggle, because there is no way of dealing with that kind of event, if that's your thinking. Now, in our church here, we do not teach that. We do not teach that. But actually, what we can still come up against is that kind of feeling within us that why should a good God let bad things happen to me? Why should God, who is all-loving, who has sent Jesus to die for me, who has exhibited so much love to me, not sort out whatever our prison situation is? Why can he not bring freedom for me? Why can he not do this? Why can he not do that? We might look at our world and we might sort of see, well, how can God let what is happening in Gaza and Israel unfold at the moment? How can a good God let what is going on in South Sudan unfold? How can a good God leave all these Christians around the world being um, left in jail when actually they're serving Jesus, who is a risen Lord and Savior? Now, we may want to be good Bible-believing Christians. We may set the context and say, well, the world is fallen. The world is broken. All that stuff is true. But when it hits us and hits us hard, we get the disconnect. And the disconnect between our expectation and the reality of the world causes that fertile soil for doubt to grow. Sometimes I think we need to get back to basics. We need to actually look at what Jesus does say rather than what we think he should say. You know, Jesus never promises an easy ride as a Christian. Never. He promises to journey with us, come what may. He promises to be there even through the valley of the shadow of death. But he never says, look, if you follow me, everything will be wonderful. Never. We've heard this morning again about the persecuted church. They are experiencing that God is with them, even though all around them is absolutely rubbish. Just look at these couple of verses. There are many, many more that we could say. Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Really? Do we want to say that? Is that what we actually want for ourselves? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Because we're followers of Jesus, expect the kind of stuff. This is what John the Baptist was in effect doing. He was standing up for God's truth, and he ended up in prison. That's an exact application of Matthew 5.11. Or John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not, you might have a little bit, 
or you might occasionally have a bit of trouble, but you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't leave us in the trouble. He moves us forward, as we'll see. Jesus never promises an easy ride. There is no immunity from the problems of this world. John the Baptist wasn't immune. We aren't immune. To follow Jesus' way is to follow a Messiah who actually takes the suffering and suffers himself so that actually we can then walk forward into freedom. Oswald Chambers, I came across this quote um, just this morning actually, says this, No healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. To follow Jesus is just to follow him wherever it leads us. But then we could read on in the gospel and we can still see all these miracles that Jesus is doing, all these times of restoration. As you go into the book of Acts, you can see that Peter was freed from prison, but John the Baptist isn't. And we may look at our world and we may say, well, why does God do good things to some people? And yet to me, it doesn't seem to be happening. I pray and I pray and I pray and God still doesn't release me from whatever it is. And again, the disconnect comes. And again, it produces that fertile soil for doubt. You know what? If we find ourselves in that boat, we are in exactly the same place that John the Baptist was. Exactly the same place. I don't know about you, but it actually gives me quite a lot of comfort. Because when I feel like I'm in those moments, there is one who was the forerunner of Jesus who experienced those exact things. You see, what we experience can impact our emotions and our feelings. I don't know about you, but I don't think my feelings are a very reliable guide to reality. Do you think that about your own feelings? Um, Thursday morning, I was up early. Um, I had a really long day. It was about a 14-hour day. It was foggy Thursday morning if you got up early. It was dreary. It was horrible. Yet, for some reason, I woke up with a brightness on my inside, and the day sort of went really quite nicely all the way through. Following day, I had a day off, and it was sunshine, and I woke up with a grump. No logic to it whatsoever. I think, Claire's it's prospect of being with you for the day. <laughs> but sometimes our feelings, they're not things that we can rely on, are they? But over time, we can get ourselves into a pattern of feeling that can either be joyful, or we can feel down, and we can feel in those kinds of ways. What I think is happening to John the Baptist is his experience has driven down his feeling to such a point where there's this massive disconnect with his expectation and his reality. Just look at what John was expecting Jesus to be like. Here's from Matthew. He says, I baptize you with water from repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Does Jesus do all that? Well, absolutely. At the end of time, we get the sheep and the goats and all those prophecies of judgments and stuff that Jesus talks about. But was that Jesus' ministry on earth? Do we see that? Well, to some degree, but we see a lot more of Jesus going and healing people. We see a lot more of Jesus getting stuck in with the day-to-day things of everyday life. We see Jesus going and feasting with sinners and outcasts and meeting with people who, you know, people in society wouldn't meet with. I wonder if what John the Baptist was actually expecting was this all-conquering Jesus who would come in and sort out the Romans, he'd kick out the Jewish authorities, all this winnowing stuff would be done in the here and now, and actually John would be in a great place. Not so. Where's John? Let's remind ourselves, he's in a prison cell. 
There's this disconnect, and that's where the, the doubt creeps in. Now, wouldn't it be good if we could say, well, John the Baptist had a nice, happy ending, that everything then went swimmingly well for him, and, you know, he just lived out his days in, in some wonderful place. He didn't. It actually went even worse than it was when he was in prison. He was beheaded, and by, the, um, by Luke chapter 9, he's dead. What had happened was Herod, in a drunken party, um, makes out some lavish claims to give his daughter anything, and the daughter wants the head of John the Baptist, chops his head off, and that's the end of John the Baptist. It is not a good ending to this story. But let's ask the question about faith and doubt. How do these two things sit alongside each other? Was John the Baptist right to doubt? Do we have any control over doubt? Is doubt sin? What do we do with it? Well, it's often said that doubt and faith are the flip sides of the same coin. That if you have faith, you're believing in something you cannot see. So actually, it is perfectly logical to doubt from time to time. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You can't believe in Jesus without having faith. And faith sometimes will cause us to then question, simply because we have faith. But you see, faith in Jesus is not blind faith. It's faith that is rooted in history. It's faith that is rooted in experience. It's faith that is rooted in hope for the future. You know, as I look back on the history of the church, Jesus rose from the dead. That's what I believe 100%. But I also believe it because there is a line of people going right the way through to the present day who believe exactly the same thing. You read Paul, probably the first of the the writers to get his pen down and actually put down what happened. And then you go from Paul, you go to the last writer in the New Testament, John, who writes Revelation. He had a disciple called Polycarp who also wrote books, and we have those. We have access to them. He then had people who we talked to, and we can read their books as well. If you want to borrow them, I've got them. You can have a read of them. They're not terribly exciting, but they do give evidence to this belief of the resurrection going right the way back to the early days of the church. It's an evidence-based faith. Second thing we've already talked about this morning, the concept of a creator God. You know, as I look at the world around us, even in its brokenness and fallenness, there is so much evidence of a creator. You know, how much evidence is there when everything that God has made is ordered and wonderfully put together? What do we see in our world where God isn't present? Does it go back to order or does it go to chaos? It goes to chaos, doesn't it? Yet God brings order out of chaos. C.S. Lewis said, I know I've said this loads of time before, if there was no more evidence for God than his thumb, it would be enough. I always think it's a good thing at that point to wiggle your thumb and just think, how on earth did God do that? How on earth is my brain telling me to do that now and how is it telling me to stop? It's just incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible how we are made. Lives changed. You know, I know that God has changed me. I'm not as I was and I hope I'm not as I will be one day. I've seen loads of other people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. I've seen healings and miracles where the kingdom of God has broken into the here and now. I've seen evidence, but sometimes we forget that evidence when we're in the valley places. Sometimes when doubt arises, we forget to remember all that God has done. And then faith is rooted in the hope that I can be part of God's greatest rescue mission to the world. In following Jesus, I can be bringers of the good news. In following Jesus, we can be that together. Doubt is questioning faith. And it starts when we start to look at all these things that we believe in and say, did God really say that? Did God really do that? Who was the first person to say that in the Bible, anyone? 
the devil, the serpent in Genesis, when he questions what God has said. And that is essentially what doubt is. It's not believing the big picture. It's about looking at the small and saying, did God really say that? Did I really witness God do this? Did I really see that God was doing this in my life? The question is, not will we doubt, but which direction will doubt lead us? Will it lead us further towards God, or will it lead us away from him? We cannot know God without faith. That is impossible. With faith, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the writer of the Hebrews says. But actually, in believing, we often have to wrestle with doubt and uncertainty. Doubt can lead to sin, but doubt of itself, I don't believe, is sin. It can just lead to it. So here's the thing. What does Jesus say to John? How does he encourage him to confront his doubt? So let's look beyond. Let's look at Jesus' answer. Verse 22 to 23, we get Jesus' answer. It's really interesting what Jesus doesn't do before we look at what he does do. He doesn't send back to John a platitude. He doesn't say, here's some nice answer, you know, it'll be all right on the night sort of thing. Don't worry, John, everything will work out fine. That wasn't going to be true for John. So he wouldn't say it. He doesn't offer him a simplistic answer. Do you notice he doesn't mention John's situation at all? With his message back to him, he doesn't even mention it. He doesn't say, come on, John, God is teaching you a lesson there in prison. He's strengthening you for something in the future. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if only you had more faith, you'd be released from prison, like Peter will be in the future. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't criticize his doubt. He doesn't tell him to toughen up. Instead, he just says, look in faith at the bigger picture of what God is up to. Look with the eyes of faith. And it has to be in faith because John is in a prison cell and he can't see out of it. He wouldn't be able to see what God is doing. But he says, look beyond your immediate situation to the bigger evidence of the kingdom of God. And then we get the list of miracles that Jesus has been doing. Things that no human being can do off their own. Bringing sight to the blind. Bringing um, healing to the sick. Raising the dead. These are not things a human being can do. But then the final one, I think it's really interesting. What comes last? The gospel is preached to the poor. The final sign of the coming of God's kingdom. Now, miracles are great, but miracles are for this life, and they're only ever temporary. The gospel has an eternal significance. The gospel is for all eternity. So the instruction comes back. Report to John what you have seen and heard. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Because John still has the choice to respond in faith. He can just reject Jesus, or he can say, absolutely, I'm following what you say. So what happens? Slightly annoying, Luke doesn't tell us. Neither does Matthew, so we're not given the answer as to how John deals with this doubt. But I think for us, it's so important to look at Jesus' response here when the doubts arise in our own life. Because I think what Jesus is encouraging John to do is look beyond look and see the greater work of the kingdom, and look and see our own troubles in an eternal perspective. It's very easy, isn't it, to to get stuck in our own sort of mental prison and let our own thoughts dominate, and not to be able to look beyond, not to be able to look and see what God is doing. I think that's why it's so important often to hear other testimonies of what God is doing in other people's lives. 
why it's important to hear from different parts of the world where the church is growing like wildfire, why it's important to encourage one another as to what God is doing perhaps in our own lives as well. You know, we all deal with our own issues, our problems, our fears, the things that wake us up in the middle of the night. But actually, what are we going to do to them? What are we going to do with those fears? Are we going to bring them to Jesus and say, Lord, will you help me see a bigger picture? It doesn't change the reality of what we're going through, but actually what it does is it helps it set it in a slightly different context. Jesus is very simple. Look out and look and see what God is doing. Look out and look and see the goodness of God. Look out and see the coming kingdom that is for all eternity. So I want to leave us just with a very simple question today. What will we do when we doubt? Bury it, hope it will go away. Come to Jesus in humility, ask him to help us. Will we look and see the work of God? Will we look and see the work of the kingdom? Now today it might be that at the end of our service you you want to go and pray with somebody. The prayer team will be available. Just that God would strengthen you as you grapple with some of those things. It may be today that actually what you need to do is is have a one-to-one chat with somebody. You know, come and talk to me, come and talk to Carol, one of the other leaders, and we'd love to chat with you um, and just to work some of those things through. Do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. But I think in working those things through with one another, we can seek God's heart together. It might be that you just need to go and sit on your own and say, Lord, would you help me have that bigger picture of who you are? of the goodness and greatness of God, the love of God that is showed primarily in his coming, his incarnation, his death on the cross, and his rising again. Claire showed me um, a a video clip just this morning, wasn't it, which um, I've downloaded, and we're just going to watch it. And it is talking about how we deal with a world where we see so much suffering, where there are so many questions, and how we hold those before God. The, the person speaking is Brooke Lighterwood. Some of you may know she's a songwriter and wrote What a Beautiful Name and quite, another, uh, quite a number of other songs that we sing quite regularly. So just watch this and then I will pray for First us Corinthians at the 2, end. 2 says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I have been pondering that scripture a lot in my own life lately. What does it mean to have Calvary, Jesus Christ and him crucified at the center of my awareness? When there's so much to know and there's so much we don't know, why is it important to know that Calvary is enough? There's a prayer by Douglas Kane McKelvey, which has been such a blessing to me in this past season, and I wanted to share it with you, with the publisher's permission, in its entirety now. In a world so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O Lord, than we can rightly consider, of more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carried the full weight of the suffering of our broken world when you hung upon the cross, and you carry it still. When the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures, never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens, for our arms are too short and our strength is too small. Justice and mercy, 
healing and redemption are your great labours. And yes, it is your good pleasure to accomplish such works through your people, but you have never asked any of us to undertake more than your grace will enable us to fulfil. Guard us then from shutting down our empathy or walling off our hearts because of the glut of unactionable misery that floods our awareness. You have many children in many places around this globe. Move each of our hearts to compassionately respond to those needs that intersect our actual lives, that in all places your body might be actively addressing the pain and brokenness of this world. Each of us liberated and empowered by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your redemptive work assigned to us. Give us discernment in the face of troubling news reports. Give us discernment to know when to pray, when to speak out, when to act, and when to simply shut off our screens and our devices and to sit quietly in your presence, casting the burdens of this world upon the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, whether it's our own struggles, whether it's our own valley experiences that cause the questions, the anxiety in our minds, whether it's looking on our news channels, whether it's looking on our websites at reports that come in from around the world that cause us to question and doubt your goodness. Lord, I want to pray this morning that we will look once again to Calvary. We will look and see the one who became man. We will look and see the one who came and lived amongst us. The one who came and suffered for the sins of the world. The one who rose again in great glory. So that we might be part of a new creation where one day there'll be no more crying, no more tears and no more pain. But Lord, in this life we know we will have trouble. We know there will be times of distress. That has been prophesied in your word. And so Lord, we ask... If we're disquieted today, if we are in that place of of doubt or struggle, Lord, that you would help us to draw our eyes to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you help us to rest knowing that you have it all, even though we might not. Knowing that you are the one who can carry that which is a burden that we cannot bear. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh? Would you encourage us? Would you keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we pray? In whose name we ask. Amen.